cybersecurity now gets an immense amount of attention. It hasn't always been this way, but there were people who were thinking about this 20 or even 30 years ago. I'm Jim Lewis, Senior Vice President and Director of the Technology Policy Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This podcast, Cyber from the Start, goes to the roots of cybersecurity. It looks at how we develop the policies we have for critical infrastructure, surveillance, espionage, warfare, and privacy. Looking at this and talking to the people who helped lay the foundations will help us see where we started and how we ended up where we are today. The discussion today is with Admiral Michael McConnell, who served both as the director of the National Security Agency and then as the second director of the Director of National Intelligence. He worked to retarget government efforts on cybersecurity and on modernizing how the U.S. conducts intelligence operations. So in some ways, he's one of the people who looked pretty far into the future and said, this is what we ought to be focusing on. Well, thank you for doing this. Sure. Uh, it's really uh it's really an honor. So we had you here for lunch in uh, late 2006, uh, right before you became DNI. Mm. And one of my colleagues, uh, former journalists, asked you, what keeps you up at night? Which is a, really a, an original question. And we all thought, this is 2006. So we mm. thought you'd say terrorism or al-Qaeda or the Taliban. You said cybersecurity, mm. that cyber threat was what kept you up at night. And everyone in the room was really shocked. Really? Yes, they were. Wow. No one predicted that. Mm. Why did you say that? Well, um, when I went to NSA in 1992, mm-hmm. uh, world had changed. The Cold War was over. Mm-hmm. Peace dividend, you know, gets smaller. If you know, if you study the history of the U.S. intelligence community, we've never sustained it in our history, with one exception, mm-hmm. for the Cold War. Post, we weren't ready for World War One or World War Two. We built a robust capability in World War II, and then because of the Cold War, there was a bipartisan uh, consensus to sustain it. So basically, uh, most of us focused on that issue, either you know planning or mm-hmm. intelligence or whatever, and that was my space. Uh, my focus primarily was the Soviet Navy and the Soviet submarine force. Um, I was fortunate enough to get selected for FLAG. I became uh, General Powell's intel officer for uh, what became Desert um, Shield Desert Storm, mm-hmm. and uh, as a result of that, we kind of did what we set out to do, <laughs> and everybody was looking around. Okay, now what do we do? And, and I, <laughs> I, I had been a one star for mm-hmm. uh, at the time about five months, and the secretary said, "Well, uh, we need somebody to replace Bill Steuben up in a say." So why don't we send McConnell? And uh, his staff said, "Well, you can't do that." And he said, "Well, well why not?" And he said, "Well, he's only a one star." As three-star billet, and Secretary Cheney said, well, "Why can't I do it?" And he said, uh, "Well, you just don't go from one to three. <laughs> he said, "Well, we'll see." And boom! So yeah. now I'm at NSA. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm at NSA, uh, May of '92, mm-hmm. and uh, the internet. It was just before the internet exploded. We had the internet, but it hadn't really. Uh, we had, uh, Netscape hadn't done www to make it, you know, usable for everybody. And uh, the world had gone, had tra- already transitioned from analog to digital and fiber, fiber optic networks, and it was the speed of the network and the, the, the strength of networking. And everybody was rushing to embrace information technology. Um, when I looked at that and started to think about what's the future of signals intelligence, and I'm, you know, consulting with my best advisors and so on, uh, basically is you're going to have to live in the network and own the network to do the nation's business. Mm-hmm. So we started a little project, and uh, the surpri- first surprise was how easy it was. I mean, it was literally, if you wanted it, you could take it. And here was the issue. In the wireless world and the analog world, it was transmitting information from point A to point B. When it got to point B, it was on a printer that became a piece of paper that went into a safe or behind a locked door. It was hard to get access to. In the digital world, <clears throat> it was stored on a computer, 
and I referred to that as <clears throat> data at rest. Mm -hmm. So what we were enjoying as success for exploitation was exploiting data at rest. And, and then I realized, I'm an economics major as an undergrad, I said, wow, um, I bet banking is rust to enjoy this, and I poked around a little bit. And yeah, they were uh, totally going digital, and wealth was stored as ones and zeros. I said, well, goodness, if it's this easy for us to do this, what are the criminals gonna do? And oh, more importantly, what are the nation states gonna do? And I, I just had an epiphany. Um, most people think of NSA as code breaking. Mm -hmm. well, most people don't focus on the other side of NSA's mission is code making. Now there's legislation that prevents NSA from doing anything for the private sector or for the unclassified sector. Uh, there's NSA is supposed to secure the classified enterprise. So we had a lot of expertise and capability. And so I'm starting to worry and think about how do we do better uh, code making to protect information that's vital to the to the nation, and uh, I said this is this is a, a strategic issue. We're more vulnerable than anybody else in the world because we're we're inventing it, and we're embracing it, and we've be we're becoming digitally dependent. and And that's only that's 1992-3 is when I was going through that. That's only become uh, increased situation since that time frame. We are totally dependent on the digital infrastructure, uh, whether it's electric power or uh, money in banking or transportation. I, I give an example. Uh, you, you probably call on occasion uh, the airline the computer goes down, mm -hmm. everything stops because you, you can't get passengers through or on or loaded or you know all your uh, the things you need to do to coordinate the flight of airplanes, so it just stops. So if you just magnify that, to the fact nation states have now invented tools to be able to do transportation or electric power or money banking. Uh, we're in a very uh, tenuous state. Related to that, and a little a little off topic though, is uh, when you said uh, 1992, 1993, it of course made me think of the uh, clipper chip. Oh, yeah. Um, was that one of your uh, brainchilds? Well, I'd like to claim credit for it, but, uh, <laughs> or maybe not. Uh, maybe it, not. <laughs> it, it wasn't my uh, idea but um, but I embraced it. Mm -hmm. The thought was pretty simple. Um, and um, most people referred to it as a, a back door. Mm -hmm. And another way to think of it is a, a reasonable, well-designed um, encryption for which there are keys. And if you think about uh, protecting classified information, there are keys for everything. I mean, it, the, the big challenge for NSA in those days, we were trying to do electronic key distribution. Because you think about global force, mm -hmm. entire military, and everybody had to change the key at the same time. So it made sense that, well, they're gonna be keys. So the idea we came up with was, well, why don't we just escrow a key with a trusted authority, you know, the courts or uh, Price Waterhouse, you know, we didn't know, we weren't an advocate for who would maintain the key, mm -hmm. but uh, we're a nation of laws, and so if the FBI or, or the intelligence community needed access to a key for some legitimate purpose, you just go make your case, like you go to the FISA court today. And you draw the key and you do your do your mission. So it made sense. So I went, I went around. I, interestingly, most people won't, won't, don't know this, but the first person I want to talk to was uh, Admiral Bobby Emmett. Uh, very influential, been the director of NSA, been the deputy uh, DCI. And so he said, this is a great idea. This is a solution we ought to embrace. He said, i tell you what to do. Go see some members of the Hill and have a discussion with them. And I said, uh, all right, sir, who, who do you think I ought to talk to first? And he said, Joe Biden. So I went up to see Senator Biden, and 10 minutes into the conversation, he said, you're right, we ought to do this. <laughs> and so we were getting a lot of support. Uh, now, the, er, the beginning of the idea was in the previous the Bush administration, George H.W. Bush. And they thought about it a bit, but now we had a new administration, uh, the Clinton administration. And early read was they, they supported it, but um, industry did not want to embrace it, and they pushed back so hard and so strong. Remember, uh, the Clinton administration made use of the uh, Silicon Valley and you know getting support, political support, and so there was strong pushback. So the idea died mostly on a political level, as opposed to a is this a, a reasonable solution we should work through. Did the clipper chip battle prepare you for what you were going to go through when surveillance came up when you were DNI? Yeah, it did. Um, re realizing 
I'd always worked mm-hmm. as an intel professional and never been to political level. That was a big lesson learned for me. So when I went in to be the new DNI, it, it was clear to me that the FISA bill, the FISA legislation that has existed, passed in 78, had been you know tweaked a little bit, but not significantly changed. So uh, let's examine a bit what was going on in 78. We had Watergate. The intelligence community was doing things that were inappropriate. Uh, uh, I don't know if it was a violation of law, but it was certainly a violation of conscience. Uh, the Army, uh, CIA, uh, NSA to some extent. So when we got through Watergate and uh, President Nixon resigned and then the Congress said, well, what are we going to do about this? They did a couple things. They uh, set up two oversight committees, the Senate Select uh, Committee on Intelligence and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and they passed FISA. And here was the dilemma. Uh, the Cold War was still going. We really need to do this thing called SIGINT, or Signals Intelligence. Um, so how would we legislate the rules? And the rules here, I, I'll simplify. The rules were if it's in the ether, if it's wireless, free game. Uh, no expectation of privacy, go at it. Uh, for legitimate targets for, for the intelligence world. If it is on a wire, and remember 1978, all phones had a little pigtail called a wire. If it's on a wire in the United States, you have to have a warrant. I, I'll tell you how, how hard it was. Soviet senior visiting uh, the UN, we had a issue where we didn't agree, and I wanted to uh, tap the telephone of the Soviet official. So you had to have the name, the location, and the phone number. Well, the official changed floors in the hotel. I had to go all the way back to the court because it's a different location and go through the same process. Well, I always stuck with me. So you remember uh, Stellar Wind in the claim, Jane Risen, uh, uh, Jim Risen, I think, had, James Risen had written about it, right. and it was a big issue. So when I came back as DNI, I looked at the program and I said, well, uh, you can make an argument that there's not a violation of law, but you can also make an argument that it is a violation. So I went to the president and said, Mr. President, uh, we've got to update this FISA legislation. He said, well, what do you mean? I don't understand. I said, well, let me give you a, an example. A terrorist in Pakistan is talking to a terrorist in Turkey via email, and they're planning to blow up two facilities in Germany, one, one German and one U.S. My access to that information is California. He said, Mike, I don't understand what he mean. I said, free email. So this email is very efficient. You can sit in some remote location in Pakistan, talk to somebody on the road in Turkey, and the place that you access it, if I'm going to get access, is going to be on a server for a free, mail, a free email service in California. I said, now, these guys are smart. They'll have 100 or 200 different email addresses. Uh, it's hard for me to find that, and I have to get a warrant. And I said, Mr. President, a warrant is you know, a stack of paper a foot deep, and it's a lot of lawyer time. It's a lot of coordination. you got to explain to the court and so on. I said, there should be no restriction on NSA targeting a legitimate target regardless of where or how we intercept it. He said, Mike, I agree with you. I don't fully understand all that. You do the right thing. So uh, the administration had looked at FISA and tried to do a couple things. Uh, once the president agreed, I took it on as primary duty, and it took us two years. What changed between when you were NSA director and when you became DNI? What Was it the same challenge? Was it different? Uh, what did you inherit when you picked up a couple years later? Uh, the, the nation was more vulnerable. Uh, nation states had learned more about cyber war. Uh, Fred Kaplan wrote an interesting book. This was uh, 2006. Uh, 2006. Seven. I, yeah, I, I, I was actually uh, nominated January 2007 and confirmed in February okay, 2007. Yeah. Uh, I'll just make reference to mm. Fred Kaplan's book. He mm-hmm. did a, I think it's called The Secret War, The History of Cybersecurity, or Cyber War. Mm-hmm. And it goes back, um, he picks up with Reagan, but it, it actually goes back further than that. Uh, in the Cold War, we had a cyber war program, so we could uh, uh, interfere, influence communications, given that we had a, some kind of crisis we had to deal with. And I was a part of that and knew about it. Um, so in 2000, or, uh, let me back up for a second. 
when I was making my case as director of NSA, nobody was listening. <laughs> nobody wanted to touch it. I, now, remember, the average age in the Senate is over 70. And when I'd go to talk to them, they'd say, oh, Mike, you know, I don't, computers, I, you know, I don't, you have to talk to my grandchildren. I don't know about that stuff. So it was hard to have a conversation with people who weren't digitally uh, aware. Uh, so we didn't make much progress. Meantime, nation states, or criminals for, at one level, nation states are producing malware that can do uh, strategic harm at the rate of, of three or uh, two or three or four thousand capabilities per year. So my worry is, uh, hey, we're focused on counterterrorism. What happens when some of those weapons, some of those, you know, you put them in a computer and they're cheap, you can walk around with them. What happens when a sophisticated group gets uh, some of these capabilities that could do some some strategic damage to the United States. I'll give you an example. Uh, U.S. economy is 19 trillion a year. Every day, every business day, um, 13 to 14 trillion a day clears the banking system, the global banking system. So if you think about that, just just for a moment, we're the largest economy in the history of the world. 19 trillion a year. And I emphasize year, and every business day. 13, 14 trillion goes to the system. And it's all based on trust. It's all based on a digital infrastructure. And it moves to speed of light. So if you could get into that system and degrade or damage or more insidiously just uh, infiltrate so it, there's loss of trust, it would shut down global banking. Uh, so, I mean, that's, a, that's an example of the kinds of things someone could do if they attempted to do it. Well, so that was my my primary focus. But since then, um, the Russians, uh, no doubt they interfered with the election, um, tried to influence it. Uh, they've now placed malware into the electrical grid. Uh, it's there as a contingency, given that we have some dust up between us and the Russians. They can do things that would be uh, uh, inconvenient to catastrophic in this country. Uh, the Chinese have learned about this. Uh, you know, everybody is well aware the Chinese do ec economic espionage to to the detriment of the United States. Depending on who you believe, uh, some have said it's the great, greatest transfer of wealth in the history of the world. Uh, at a minimum, it's probably half a trillion to a trillion dollars in damage that they do in economic espionage. Meantime, the Russians have these uh, cyber war weapons. Probably the most recent dramatic example was... Um, not Petya. Not Petya was it uh, disguised itself as ransom a ransomware attack, but what the Russians did they wanted to punish Ukraine, so they f found a tax system that everybody used, and they infiltrated a tax system in Ukraine, and it shut down 10 percent of the of the computers the servers in Ukraine, uh, four hospitals, 22 banks, countless businesses. Also important, anybody who was doing business in Ukraine was similarly uh, affected. Uh, the pharmaceutical here in the United States, it was so bad, it cost them almost a billion dollars to recover. Mm -hmm. uh, the ship, big shipping line, Maersk, 20% uh, of the global shipping, shut them down in a day. And they, and they recovered by the skin of their teeth. They had something like 120 servers that coordinated everything around the world. And think about this, you got uh, 2,000 transfer trucks lining up at a, at a port facility They've got things that need to be shipped all over the world. So there's a, an accounting for how you offload it, where you put it, how the cranes load it on ships. All that's coordinated digitally. And all of a sudden, they were blind. Uh, so the damage to Maersk for recovery was on the order of uh, $3 billion. That doesn't count the missed deliveries of just-in-time parts for manufacturing and all that sort of thing. The way they saved themselves, they had a... 120 servers that coordinated their global enterprise, and 119 of them were wiped out. Mm -hmm. They were desperately trying to say, well, can we find a server to let us get back online? They found one in Africa that was offline because of a power failure. It wasn't infected. So now the race was, how do we get it? Uh, the data centers in UK, how do we get the, that server to the UK, there was a, that's a whole logistics nightmare there. But they did, and it took them probably a couple of weeks to get online. It, it, it took them months to be fully recovered. So that's that's a that's an example of an information warfare weapon 
that had dramatic impact. Uh, estimates are $10 billion in damage uh, just because they were trying to, the Russians, Russian GRU, was trying to inflict damage on uh, Ukraine. You recall they shut down electric power in mm -hmm. uh, 2015, 2016. Yeah, twice. So this was another another effort to do that. Let's stick with intelligence for a little bit. Has uh, cyber collection become the centerpiece of intelligence when you think about the other ints, whether it's imagery or human or classic SIGINT, which is the well, intercepts? I, I'm a little biased because I've was privileged mm -hmm. to serve as director of NSA, but uh, let me put my consumer hat on. As mm -hmm. a youngster, worrying about the Soviet Union and specifically the Soviet Navy, and more specifically the the submarine force, the, the mm -hmm. SSBNs, the ones with ballistic missiles that could do strategic damage, um, of the of targeting that world, uh, signals intelligence was probably 75% of the take it was the most useful mm -hmm. because it was timely. And that's not to say that human intelligence is not valuable. It's extremely valuable, but it's slow and it's it's painful. You got to recruit somebody. They got you know take great personal risk and that sort of thing. We can take pictures, and that's a wonderful thing. You can look at you know things happening in the world. It's less world. wonderful now that you can get it on Google Earth. <laughs> well, we were we we did it early, and it was mm -hmm. oh it was a boon for us, but. Day-to-day -day ebb and flow, uh, mm -hmm. what are leaders thinking and doing and talking about? What are they planning strategically? Uh, the big effort they're kicking off as an exercise or is it something different? Uh, signals intelligence is about 75% of the take. It's, it's the essential part that makes the system work day-to-day. -day. So you ask me, is, has cyber become the centerpiece? I, I would say what we now refer to as cyber has been the centerpiece since World War II. Mm -hmm. Remember, we were breaking Nazi Germany code and reading the orders to the field commanders before the German field commanders. And in um, the Pacific, it it, uh, it turned the battle of the, for the Pacific around. Uh, we didn't know where the big armada that was underway uh, was going. Yeah, Midway. Uh, and we we told Midway, broadcast to, to us in a clear that you have no you have a water shortage because they don't have fresh water. You need a water tanker immediately. And we didn't know where the fleet was, but Tokyo broadcast to the fleet, uh, target is suffering water sh shortage. So now Nimitz, the commander, knew where they were going. So he put the remaining U.S. fleet uh, and was waiting for them. And when they came off uh, over the horizon, he, he attacked. Were you a crippy? No. I'm, uh, a, I'm a general guy, gen really? general intel guy. What do you think of the Navy so far, like 10th Fleet and— the efforts starting, I think, with Roughhead that they put in yeah. to make cyber. Yeah, uh, fully supported. I went to see um, Admiral Mike Mullen when he was the mm -hmm. chief of the Navy, and he was about to go the Air Force route, and I made it impassioned. Please don't do that. Um, uh, Army, because of Vietnam, had disbanded their, their um, creepy force. And uh, interestingly, Jim Clapper, uh, who was the, the senior intel guy in the Air Force at the time, uh, agreed with that path. Hmm. And another name that, uh, we know and, and love, um, former director of NRO, Keith Hall had been on the Hill, and he was in OSD mm -hmm. on the ASD CQ die staff, Assistant Secretary of Defense for mm -hmm. Communications, Intelligence, whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, he agreed that uh, Army and Navy got rid of the Crippy Force, so should the Navy. And I'm the director of NSA at the time, and I just said I'm I'm laying on those tracks because I I know the value value of this. I've seen it for my entire career. Uh, little known fact: way back in my career, I was based in Rota, Spain. Mm -hmm. uh, it was called a FOSIF, Fleet Ocean Surveillance Information Facility, and we were placed inside a SIGINT facility. And our mission was to take care of the Sixth Fleet, and so we had to bleed out of the SIGINT information. Um, technical details and so on, and NSA did not want us to do that. So the solution space was NSA created a cryptologic support group, NSA mm -hmm. people, mm -hmm. and assigned it to the FOSIF mm -hmm. to help us do what we had to do. So um, th that allowed me to see the value of it and understand it and the ebb and flow and how it was done. Mostly it was traffic analysis in those days. So that that's how I had an appreciation for this. So uh, living in the site with Crippies who did this as a mission – uh, just gave me an uh, understanding of how valuable they were. So uh, Hall was pushing the agenda, and at that time, 
General Powell was still the chairman, probably the most influential member of the, of the U.S. military, not only by uh, the fact he was a chairman, but, you know, he was very popular and influential. So I just went down to see him, and I said, General, they're pushing me to do this, and I don't agree with it. And he said, well, you do the right thing. And so we rolled it back. So the Navy sustained its uh, cryptologic capability, and they still have it. Yeah, it's, if anything, bigger. Yeah. They've actually made it a warfighting discipline, and at Annapolis now, you can major in uh, cyber, they call it cyber science. What do you think about NSA Cyber Command Link, maybe NSA having a civilian director for the first time? I think it's probably going to happen. Uh, my recommendation for who that person would be would be Chris Inglis for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I think separating them is a mistake. Um, Why? For Cyber Command to be able to do um, defense, or more importantly, their real mission is uh, offense, uh, degradation, destruction of uh, some enemy's capability. Um, If you'll think about it for a second, the skills to do that, it's much more challenging to go into a computer system, extract information, and leave no fingerprints than it is to go into a computer system and destroy it. So the skill level, the highest level of skill in the United States is maintained by the NSA workforce. So when uh, I sat down with um, former Vice Chairman uh, House Cartwright, Jim Cartwright, mm-hmm. and Keith Alexander, mm-hmm. we agreed, as the three of us, I was the DNI at the time, I said, look, this is critically important that we have a, a cyber f- workforce that's a supporting commander to all the other commanders because this is the future. Uh, we agreed, the three of us, that uh, I would write a letter to the Secretary of, of Defense, Bob Gates at the time, and make a recommendation. One, he creates Cyber Command, and two, he dual hat that person as the Director of NSA and the Commander of Cyber Command. And, he, and Jim, here's my lesson learned on that. I mentioned the Information Warfare Campaign Cold War. I served at NSA uh, for a year during that period, and the the organization that ran that effort for the for the Joint Chiefs was co-located, we were next door. Mm-hmm. And I had tremendous capability because of the Navy's penetration. So they came over and said, hey, we need to get your tactical information. I said, well, what do you do? I said, well, I can't tell you. <laughs> I said, okay, then you're not getting it. So they thought, well, all right, we'll get you cleared and so on. So they got me cleared and it made sense to me. They wanted to figure out if they could have some real impact. So I went to my bosses and uh, I said, hey, I've got this request, and you know, what do you think? And the answer was, don't give them anything. I said, excuse me? This is a program run out of the Joint Chiefs for national defense, and your instructions are, don't give them anything? I said, absolutely nothing. I said, well, that's kind of interesting response. I said, well, I better go over my boss's head and go to the next level. So I got to the next level, a very smart person that uh, was very much engaged in the Navy's programs, and you recall the Navy's programs, how, how efficient they were. Mm-hmm. And his answer was, don't give him anything. Hmm. And I was always struck by that. Why? Well, if you're a bureaucracy and your mission is signals intelligence and somebody might tamper or damage or impact that in any way, the answer is no. So I always carried that sort of as a lesson learned. So when we had the opportunity to make the recommendations on creating Cyber Command, I knew that the bureaucracy would resist sharing any sensitive technical information, even for national defense purposes, unless they were uh, forced to do so. And the way you do that is you have the same person run each organization. So Keith Alexander agreed with that. Jim Cartwright agreed with that. Uh, I put it in my letter. Uh, I wrote that letter in October 2008. Um, Secretary of Defense said, uh, I agree with you. It's going to take me some time. And I said, "Oh, oh, by the way, Mr. Secretary, that should be a standalone unified command he said eh, mike i just stood up africa command and, and i'm a lot of slings and arrows <laughs> uh, i i can't make it a unified command i'll make it a subordinate a, a, a sub unified command subordinate to stratcom so i made my argument at the time i said you know i stratcom's wonderful i got a wonderful mission but they got a lot on their plate and it's hard to do sigint from omaha uh they don't have the the access or the wherewithal and he said, yeah, I'll, I'm going to do it, but sub-unified. Now, they've now, you know, we've debated that for years. Yeah. 
So they've now stood it up as a unified command. Uh, and then the, the bureaucracies kick in to make their point, and there's a, a consistent argument inside NSA to which Chris Inglis agrees that it should be separated. And uh, I, just don't agree, I just don't think that's the best choice. Yeah, you can make a case either way. I mean, the one I always think about is even the U.S. likes to duplicate everything, but it seems like a scarce resources don't really have enough better to keep them together. So I, I'm I just would, a budget person. I would guess that if you looked at the total investment in NSA since you know post-World War II, it's probably a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, culture, computers, know-how. So we can't afford to, to replicate that. So you got it for one purpose. My view is you can use it for another purpose. I, I, let me share one other, thing, one other thing with you, Jim. Uh, this is, I've sort of carried this around. When I w- went to NSA, I was, you know, I, I was a general intel guy and I was a big user, but you know, I, I wasn't of NSA. And so I was trying to understand the organization and so on. If you think about the manpower, uh, it's three parts. Uh, a, thir- a third of it's civilian, uh, you know, PhDs, cryptanalysts, linguists, engineers, and so on. A third of it's military. NSA pays for the, the two-thirds in their budget. There's another third that's military that's paid for by the services. Now, the, the, the strength of the, the process, and Admiral Emmon had a lot of impact on this, is because he set up CSS, uh, uh, Central Security Central Service. Central Security Service. And the idea was the director of NSA would then orchestrate the movement of military who's out doing tactical missions, flying RC-135s or on a ship or whatever they're doing, and then they would come to NSA. And the, the big battle in the Cold War days was authority over collection, knowing what question to ask. Mm-hmm. And if you were SIGINT smart because you worked there and then you went to be tactical, you knew what to ask for and how to ask for it. And then that movement back and forth with the strength of the system. So uh, when you when you think about the NSA workforce and how it exists today, and how that works so well, if you've got cyber command people, uh, emphasis on cryptologists, that would do an offensive mission, uh, their next assignment should be right back in where you're doing an exploitation mission. That's where you hone it. I give you one other example. Uh, I'm familiar with uh, an effort by NSA to stay on the leading, bleeding edge. If you take someone out of that group for 90 days, you got to start at the basics when they come back because it's moving that fast. And you got to stay right up on the edge to maintain your proficiency. A little bit like uh, uh, carrier flight operations. You know, sure. these some of the best pilots. I would argue the best pilots in the world. They have to qualify over and over again, particularly at night. Night calls, they call to maintain that proficiency. And so if you don't do it for some months or better part of a year, you're no longer qualified. You gotta go through the whole process again. It's very similar in the in the cyber world today. So I do wanna come back to the agency issue and particularly looking at DHS, but before we do that, um, I think right at the end of your term at DNI, you, uh, you kind of, if I remember, sort of forced through a rewrite of uh, 12333 and um, what were you thinking of when you did that? It's another one of these modernizations that you've uh, you've been known for. Executive Order Twelve Triple Three, I guess we should say. Yeah, Executive Order Twelve Triple Three, signed by um, President Reagan originally. Yeah. Um, it was a a brilliant document to organize the community and folks. The original document. Original was, yeah. and uh, it was written for the Cold War, and Cold War was over. Nine Eleven happened. Department of Homeland Security was created. They had an intelligence mission. Um, the FBI got a new emphasis and broader intelligence mission, and we created the DNI. So if you just look at the 12333 signed by President Reagan, woefully out of date. Yeah. It, didn't, it didn't accommodate a DNI or DHS or FBI's new mission or anything. So I said, I, I, I believe it need to be updated. So I went to the, um, it's called PIFIAB in those days, uh, President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, now PIAB, yeah. President's Intelligence Advisory Board, and made my case, and they said, you're right, you need to do this. So I said, okay, I shopped it in the White House, and I got incredible pushback. <laughs> uh, the, the vice president's staff was adamant, don't do it. And I said, why not? I mean, it needs to be done. He said, if you go down that path, you'll wind up losing authorities you currently have. 
And I said, well, I, that's not good enough rationale for me. I, I think we owe it to the nation to do the right thing. So uh, at an opportunity with the president's daily briefing, I said, I need to do this. And he said, well, okay, uh, get started. Well, we launched the effort. And I had a couple of heroes helping me, uh, a guy named Ben Powell, who was my general counsel, sure. and a guy named David Shedd, who was director of policy. And they went into a briar patch because we weren't dealing at the secretary level or even the deputy. We were dealing with staff. And the staff's reaction was, wait a minute, you're, you're talking about the prerogatives of my secretary. So they were doing everything to prevent us from getting the closure. So I went back to the PIAB or PIFIAB, and I said, uh, hey, I'm getting – incredible pushback uh, on a bureaucratic basis. And they said, well, let us have a conversation with the president. So within, I don't know, a, a week after that, the president called a, a cabinet meeting. And he said, uh, now I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to redo this executive order, and I'm going to sign it, and I want you all to tell your staffs to get on with it. And boom, it, it took us a year, but it only took about two months, maybe three months after the president engaged. And we got it signed. And because it was an executive order, you didn't have to do much with Congress? No. As you know, the yeah. supreme law of the land is the Constitution and then legislation that yeah. Congress passes, both houses, and the president signs. The president has a lot of discretion with the executive orders. That's sort of – I think of it as Constitution first, law second, executive orders next. And this was in the authority of the president to do, consistent with law. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, think it, I think it was a big improvement. Uh, there's an interesting artifact there. I was trying to get a few things done for the DNI, and uh, the in Reagan's 12333, the supreme authority for signals intelligence is Secretary of Defense. And I said, well, you know, we've got we didn't have a DNI in those days, and we probably had, that's one little thing we need to change. Uh, Bob Gates, who helped me do countless things, <laughs> that he drew a line. <laughs> he said, nope, <laughs> we're not going <laughs> to agree to that. that. One. Yeah. Well, you think about it, the yeah. NSA is a defense agency. Part of the challenge to the DNI is uh, there's 17 agencies counting ODNI, and uh, the only organization that works for the DNI is the, his staff. Uh, everybody else works for another cabinet officer, and CIA, uh, the words say, report through the DNI. Now, the magic words in, in legislative land is direction, control, and authority, and any good lawyer can draw, drive a truck through through. So uh, fortunately for me, uh, Mike Hayden was there, you know, good friend, and he he understood uh, your the successor policy. at NSA. Uh, no, I was relieved by Ken Minahan, okay. who was relieved by Mike Hayden, sure. okay. and then Hayden became the principal deputy mm -hmm. DNI, and it wrote a lot of the you know stand up uh, information. Well, when you're new, the you're the new director, you have to represent the interests of your constituents. So he was you know strong on preserving. Um, CIA's equities, and I would have been too, but um, we we did have to do some very conduct some very important missions. So when I was asked originally to be the, I was asked first to be the deputy, and I did some consulting uh, to find out, and I said no, it's not going in the right direction. Then they asked me to be the director at September 2006, and I said no again. Uh, after the election in uh, November 2006, the president changed the leadership of defense. He chose Bob Gates. Okay, new ball game. Uh, I knew him when he was the DCI, Director of Central Intelligence. He ran an XCOM uh, executive committee. We brought in all the agency heads, and we just talked about policy and process and budget and so on, and I was on that, so I knew him fairly well. During Desert Shield and Storm, he was the Deputy National Security Advisor, and I was in and out often briefing. So uh, I got the request to be DNI again, and so I called him. And uh, he had turned down the position and, and written an op-ed on why not, why he turned it down. Uh, no authority, no influence, whatever. And I said, I've been asked, and he said, yeah. Uh, I said, well, I can't do this without the support of the, <laughs> of the Secretary of Defense. He said, yeah. I said, well, are you in favor of my nomination? He said, yeah. I said, will you help me do what I gotta do? He said, yes, I will. You mentioned uh, DHS and the couple questions have come up repeatedly since that organization was created relating to cyber. The first one is, you know, other countries have moved to standalone agencies, and the U.K. might be the best example. Singapore, Israel, France, 
do we need to move to a standalone agency? Yeah, we do. We do. Um, and there's a part of that that might happen now. Uh, bill McCall's bill. McCall's bill. Yeah. I think it's been agreed to by the Senate. I don't think it's been signed out yet, but it's creates Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. I think of it in terms of DOD. DOD has a big staff, but it's not operational. If you want something done, you create an operational group. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could argue NSA as an agency is an operational organization of DOD to do SIGINT. Uh, Defense Logistics Agency, you know, whatever it is you do. And, and for the fighting forces, so it's unified commanders. So what uh, DHS has done or will do if this uh, passes is create an agency to be operational on the cyber defense issue. I, I think there's – I haven't. I had an idea. I floated it. I haven't gotten much support to it. Uh, my idea was this is relatively simple unless we're – willing to change the legislative framework. I said, given that we are where we are, what I would do is build a building, um, eight-story building. Uh, on the top floor, everything the U.S. government knows about cyber and cyber threat and actors and so on is in the top floor. And your, your access to the building depends on where your authority lies. And the bottom two floors are the private sector. Now, the rules are when you go in the door, you're cleared for the top floor. So you know all the information, but you execute consistent with your authorities. So I would do it, a li- I'd do it on the UK model. Uh, UK was, uh, in my view, smart enough to put uh, GCHQ, NSA's counterpart, as the lead for their organization. And it's working for them. They probably, the, uh, I would say, the best now. Yeah, I think you're right. And so my, my view is if we want to do it, NSA has to have a major prominent role. NSA is a monopoly on signals intelligence. What does signals intelligence do? It lets you look at what people are thinking, planning, uh, activities they're conducting, looking at their malware before they ever use it. So they would be the lead for awareness, and then you could execute the authorities consistent with uh, existing law, FBI or DHS or, or wherever. Drawing the line between DHS and NSA has been a problem almost from the start, and part of it is DHS some days, not anymore, but they used to want to be their own NSA. Right. What would you do to make the two the agencies? Now, they'll tell you they're working better together today. They are working better today. I'm still on the NSA advisory board, so I get to peek at that. Uh, I tried to help them work a lot of those issues. Uh, Jim, a lot of it is personality dependent mm-hmm. because of the way the, the framing, the legislative framework uh, exists. Mm-hmm. So, uh, a person in the organization, uh, organizations, either side, can make a decision, we're not playing, mm-hmm. and just stop progress. And that was true in DHS a few years ago. Um, it, it got so bad at one point, uh, the two secretaries had a pretty frank discussion. They went to the president to sort of try to write a peace treaty. It got better, but there's still, uh, anytime there is uh, overlap or close proximity between authorities among bureaucracies, you're going to get friction. Mm-hmm. What would you call NSA's, uh, pardon me, what would you call DHS's mission when it comes to cyber? What would you want them to do? Primarily focus on the defense as an information broker. Um, when you try to do it at the staff level, it's a, it's a challenge. And I, I would say the challenge of any secretary to put 22 agencies together and make them function, because they're all their own little bureaucracies, it's, it's almost impossible. I'll give you a couple of examples. I, you know, I was in the, in the um, uh, private sector as a contractor, and we did some work for DHS. And so just to do something as simple as a contract could take a year, 18 months, two years. Once you got to closure, now you had to have approvals for access. And you could be approved on the basis, do you have a clearance, yes or no? If you got a clearance and you got a contract, you should have approval. Well, wait, wait a minute. There's a suitability question. And so the suitability people could put another two years into the process. So it was it was just incredible, the bureaucratic tangling. And it wasn't mature enough with enough experience to know how to cut through all that. And so it, part of it is the artifact of standing up, something like that. And part of it is uh, people, whether they're well-meaning or just protecting their own interest, it, it – it didn't work. I mean, it just didn't flow. You didn't. You didn't focus on the problem. You focused on your position or your prerogative or something of that nature. So, 
I think it's been a real challenge. One of the things you did at Booze, though, was uh, work with the government as a customer. So you have a pretty good insight into how well the government's doing. What would you change? We've talked about NSA. We've talked about DHS. What would you change in the government as a whole, the the federal customer? Um, where do you think we are on cybersecurity? What would you What would you maybe fix? First thing I would fix is the clearance process. Mm-hmm. Some years ago, I think in the early Bush administration, the clearance procedure went over to OPM. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got a small agency that you know hired a bunch of, quite frankly, youngsters to go do this. Uh, backlog is always a, a year or more. Uh, I tried as DNI. I, I was kind of busy, but I, was, I really was passionate about it, so I kept poking at it. I met with the head of OPM, uh, a woman, and uh, she didn't want to have anything to do with reform and clearance process. And I said, uh, can I ask you a question? She said, sure. I said, who do you work for? She said, I work for the president. I said, you work directly for the president? She said, yes, I do. I said, have you ever met the president? She said, well, no, I haven't. <laughs> I said, have you ever had a conversation even on the phone? She said, no. Uh, that sort of told me this was going to be an uphill battle. Uh, I've been on panels looking at the clearance process. Finally, because there's some great lessons learned in the private sector, DOD is in the process of taking back the clearance process. And if you'll recall, now it's you get a clearance after an investigation. It's good for five years. Every spy we've ever had went through that process. Um, the, the way private sector... Uh, works the problem is they have continuous monitoring. Uh, banking mm-hmm. is probably the best. Sure. You, 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 They do not monitor every keystroke, but they could. And so when you look at um, people's activities, their travel, their uh, their social media activities, there are clear evidence in there. And when you sign an FS-86 for clearance today down in the fine print, it says you're subjecting yourself to continuous monitoring. So DOD intends to take this back and make it a continuous monitoring process to improve the efficiency, and they're going to set some goals from submission of paperwork to clearance answer, yes or no, in like uh, 60 days, 90 days. So if I could do one thing to make the process work, uh, I would attack that. I'll give you an example. When I was a contractor and I was doing business, uh, if I had a contract that required 50 people to be cleared, I would hire 100. Mm-hmm. And then I would put them on admin for the clearance period. Now, uh, I'd hire good people. So over that period of time, which would take a year, 50% of them would atrophy and go to other jobs. At the end of the, of the time, and then I'd take my 50 and put them on the job. Now, what nobody understands is if a contractor is carrying that level of, of staff, uh, we don't pay for that ourselves. We put that in our rates, and it goes back to the government. So the cost of the current system is extravagant. But nobody understands that. Nobody takes responsibility for it. So I think it could be efficient, more efficient and cheaper and work with uh, uh, much greater speed to do the nation's business. Some people have said we need a single inspector general for cybersecurity that would look across the whole federal government. What do you think about the idea of a broad overview? What do you think about the idea of an IG? IGs are good things. Um, the, 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 the question is getting the right person. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, are, there are many people I know that could do it. Would they be willing to do it? Uh, a lot of them in the private sector. A lot of them had government experience that done very well in the private sector. Uh, they, they're at a different level of uh, personal estate and standing and stature and so on, so getting them back. You think about it, Jim, serving in the government today is, uh, I mean, who wants to go down that path? I mean, mm-hmm. it, the pay is not significant, and the, and the trials and tribulations and the, and the, the partisan uh, politics just makes it almost impossible. I remember sitting in front of the HIPSI, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and at that point, the, both houses were controlled by the Democrats. The leadership and the Democrats both disagreed with the Republican president's policy. And so they were, I was the ping pong ball that, you know, would go get beat up on either end. And I'm sitting there trying to do answer questions. And uh, one of the members asked me a question, and I started my answer, and they, were, they just ignored it. They're, 
by framing the question, they were condemning the process without, without even allowing me to give an answer. And I, I remember saying to myself, I just turned to the reporter and I said, stop, let the record show. The member asked a question, the member is not interested in the answer. <laughs> Put that in the record. <laughs> and then another time, it was a similar uh, effort, I was getting beat up, and I said, you know, wh why am I doing this? Wh why am I sitting here with this abuse? I mean, I'm not a bad person. I'm trying to do the nation's business. The interesting part of the committee at that time is when the Democrats really beat up on the witnesses, the Republicans get mad that, and have to show they could beat them up more. <laughs> so oh. it was a terrible oh. time. <laughs> Yeah, I don't the think Senate it's gotten little, any better. Well, the Senate at that time was a little better. Mm, okay. Where do you think we are in terms of our opponents? I mean, when you look at them, and you've been watching the Russians certainly for a long time, Chinese for a long time. I'd throw in the Iranians as well, maybe the North Koreans. Where do you think our opponents are? What are they doing? And the Russians kind of caught us off guard in 2016. They did. I don't think we fully appreciated um, what the Russians were, were. Maybe we appreciated capability. We didn't appreciate intent and, and their activities. Uh, it, I always use a, sc a scale of one to 10. This is when I used to go to the Hill, I'd, I'd, I'd just learn if you've got a scale, everybody can understand, it's just easier to make your point. I would say uh, Russia, the UK, United States are tens. Mm -hmm. uh, you could argue that Israelis are right close. But they don't have the same capability because they're not as global. Uh, in my time, 2007, eight, nine, I would have said the Chinese were a seven. I would say today they're closer to eight and a half to nine. Uh, when the Iranians, you recall our disagreement with the Iranians, and we put in legislation that was signed out by President Obama that said we would develop a capability against the Bank of Iran. Well, the Iranians saw that and said, oh, we're going to go after the Bank of America. And now, not, not realizing it's a private bank, one of many, and so they launched an effort. I would put them on a scale of 1 to 10 at that time. This is 2010, 11, uh, as about a 3 or 4. Uh, today, I'd say they're 6. So they're coming on pretty strong. They bought a lot of it, and they mm -hmm. got assistance from others. Uh, a lot of it was available on the dark web. And, but they've developed some capability. They've they're improved their capability quite a bit. And uh, I'd say the North Koreans are probably 6. So it, it's uh, the most sophisticated nations are still dominated by the, the primary players in the Cold War, but it, it's leveling. Um, a lot of the discussion now is uh, how do you uh, retaliate? How do you impose consequences? It's always been the challenge. Remember now, we had a capability going back to the Cold War. Mm -hmm. So I have sat at the decision table any number of times when you've got a terrible situation, no good options, and what can we do? And I would be the guy to say, well, if you choose to do so, we can do X, Y, or Z mm -hmm. through cyber means. And many would embrace quickly, well, let's go do that. And then the people at the table, remember, it's the interagency, wait a minute. Uh, what are the secondary tertiary consequences? We're more vulnerable than they are. So that always restrained us. Uh, the uh, If you look at it by administration, the Bush administration would have been more aggressive. The Obama administration was less aggressive in that area. Although in Bush, there mm -hmm. was there were many that said, no, 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 we're not going there because of the, of the potential consequences. Uh, the current administration's leaning pretty far forward on this, so it, I don't think it's played out yet, but uh, there's an intent to be much more aggressive operationally or offensively. How much do you worry about things like uh, proportionality and all the other laws of armed conflict when you do this. And related to that, one of the issues that came up in the, so first, laws of armed conflict, proportionality. Second, sovereignty and the overfight issue, which was a impediment in the last administration. Proportionality is something we should embrace. The issue is there is no universally agreed mm -hmm. set of rules yeah. um, like the Geneva Convention for the cyber uh, area. And sovereignty is a challenge here because in the cyber world, there are no boundaries. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is, a, this is a very hard, complex problem. I believe if I were in a position to influence the process, I would cause the United States to, to, to lead an effort. Uh, you'd have to make some judgments on how to do that, United Nations or whatever. But we got there in previous times. 
largely led by the United States. If you, if you look at post-World War II, Bretton Woods, World Bank, mm-hmm. International Monetary Fund, rules of law, I mean, a lot of that was, U- U.S. was the principal player. Uh, the Chinese today, if you just read what uh, uh, President uh, Xi says uh, in his speeches, he's going to change that. They've set up their own version of the, of the uh, uh, International Monetary Fund, an Asian International Monetary Fund. They um, they want to change the rules of the world order and put, in their view, and their, their thinking, China back as the middle kingdom that is the most influential. Most people don't appreciate this, but if you look at GDP, economists, you know, way back when, GDP for 2,000 years, the largest GDP in the world in the last 2,000 years, for 1,500 years, that was China. And and America's been number one since the 1800s. We're, we're going to have to come to grips with the fact we're about to be number two. <laughs> and so the world in is... Income. In income. In income, right. Yeah, yeah and, and GDP. Mm-hmm. If you just measure it as, as gross GDP, uh, China will be, become the world's largest economy, and they're going to have a bigger say in what the rules are. And they, their version of the rules are very different. Their form of government is single party, absolute control, monitor the citizens. Uh, that is not consistent with liberal democracy. So those two, it, it, it's it, to, in my mind, it's those two concepts are clashing just like liberal democracy versus communism. So in 2006, uh, you said the thing that kept you up at night was cyber. How do you feel now? Are we better off, worse off? Way worse off. Russians have developed more sophisticated capabilities. Uh, Putin's, under Putin's leadership, they're very aggressive. They were, in their minds, they were very successful in uh, what they did in 2016. Uh, They've used cyber extensively in the conflict with Ukraine. Uh, The Chinese have improved they basically exploited every principal organization in the United States that produces intellectual property of value, whether it's the results of R&D or source code or business plans or a way to build a better mousetrap, whatever it might be, uh, through a series of, of penetrations, either people, send the best people, they get the job, mm-hmm. their mission is to bring home mm-hmm. the information, joint venture, the rules are, and, and the rules have just gotten worse. You can do joint ventures so long as there's a Chinese partner, but oh, by the way, we have to have access to your technology and all your information. If the police just have uh, a desire to do so, they can look at any company doing business with China, and they want to look at the information in their servers. Uh, And then, of course, there's the cyber means. They found cyber to be incredibly lucrative to take what they wanted uh, whenever they wanted it from whatever company they chose to do it. i give you one more example. There are known examples where there was a key technology that they really wanted, and so they caused the value of the company to collapse. And then when it was very low, they bought it. So they now had ownership of the, of the company and the technology. So they're very, very aggressive and very sophisticated in how they're doing this. Uh, I love Dr. Strangelove, but, um, and you tried to do this when you were DNI. Is this discussion just too classified? Yes. I mean, do we do we need yes. to tell the American people more? I mean, what? Uh... You asked me earlier what I would change, and yeah. I said the clearance process, make yeah. it efficient. The other thing I would do is, <clears throat> is I would take on a review of the classification rules. If you remember, <clears throat> they were written in World War II. Uh, we were breaking Nazi Germany code, and mm-hmm. so we came up with the concepts of need to know and protect information and you know, loose lips, sink ships, all of our culture. And there's a bureaucracy built up around enforcing those rules. I think those rules need to review, be reviewed. If you, if you make an argument that we needed that for World War II, and I agree, for, we didn't want the Germans to know we're breaking our code. If you could make an argument that served us well in a Cold War, I would agree. But we're in a different time now when the ebb and flow in the artifacts of what we're dealing with are mostly in the private sector. You know, over 90% are owned and operated by the private sector. So our classification rules are hamstringing us. So I would make much more information available. Now, remember, the uh, one of the primary missions of the DNI is to protect sources and methods. So mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a consideration. Mm-hmm. But we're way overly biased in protecting sense, uh, sources and methods as opposed to getting the information to the people that need it. I used to use an example. If we, we United States, gained information that there were terrorists about to blow up a bridge in Seattle, what is the responsibility of the of the analysts that d- made that discovery? Mm-hmm. And 
the normal answer, well, write a report, uh, and I'm done. And I would say, no, your responsibility is to be in touch with the authorities who are not cleared in Seattle so they could secure that bridge and prevent it from happening. you got to save lives. Now, that's a when I use that example, people used to look at me like I was crazy. But it is, in my view, it's not... Uh, it's not need to know and it's not need to share. It's responsibility to provide. If, if the U.S. intelligence community can see what the Russians are doing and they want to attack elections or the banking system or whatever, and we know that, it's a responsibility to get it delivered to people who can do something about it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. You're one of my heroes. Thanks for listening to Cyber From The Start. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. See you on the next episode of Cyber from the Start.